that beautiful brass, that means it's time once again for UConn 360. It's the only podcast on all the seven seas that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is big episode 25. What? Coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Stores, Connecticut. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me as always, my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. What's up? Ken Best. How you doing? As we record this, it's a few days before the start of the spring semester. It's a very exciting time here on campus, here on the shores of beautiful Swan Lake, which is probably better described as a small retention pond. But to us, <laughs> it is great in spirit. It's an exciting time. The learning is about to crank up. Things are about to get going. And we have a terrific program for you this week, as always. And as we like to do, we're going to start things off with some Husky headlines Ken, I, I can see you're champing at the bit to let us know what's going on <laughs> in the world. Thank you for using the correct uh, champing. Well, b- both are acceptable. Oh. I'll take the bite then. We got word that work of uh, our sociology professor, uh, Bandana Perkasia, will be recognized by the American Sociological Association later this year with its Jesse Bernard Award, which recognizes scholarly work that has enlarged the horizons of sociology to encompass fully the role of women in society, and it's presented for significant cumulative work done throughout a professional career. Professor Perkasia is a nationally and internationally respected scholar conducting pathbreaking research in gender theory, migration, Asian studies, and human rights. Her work has been translated into several languages. She's frequently uh, invited for lectures and presentations across the United States and abroad. She's published 14 books and more than 50 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters. She was the chair of the sociology department and is the uh, national representative for the uh, Sociological Association and the uh, former president of the Sociologists for Women in Society. In addition, her students at UConn selected her three times as the best mentor in sociology, and she's been honored by the uh, UConn Alumni Association and the state of Connecticut. She'll receive the award at the National Association's annual meeting in New York City in August. Congratulations. Wow, very nice. Julie, what's going on? Well, UConn has accepted an invitation to become part of the Bold Women's Leadership Network, that's BOLD in all caps, which seeks to equip young women at select universities nationwide to be innovative agents of change during their college careers and beyond. The program is funded through a grant from Helen Gurley Brown's Pussycat Foundation. Brown, you may recall, was the legendary editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine back in the day. Starting in the spring, seven female UConn students will be selected through an application process to receive career development support, including mentoring, special programs, scholarships, funded internships, and postgrad fellowships. In research news, UConn's Health Disparity Institute has published its first report card on health equity among men and boys of color, which found that men and boys of color in Connecticut are less likely to have health insurance, more likely to be victims of violence, and more likely to die early from preventable diseases than their non-Hispanic white counterparts. The Institute looks at differences in healthcare access and outcomes in all populations in the state, but chose to focus its first report card on men and boys of color because the disparities are so striking and addressing them could help the population as a whole. The Institute plans to update this report every year and also begin one on health equity in women and girls of color this fall. Read the story at UConn today to learn about some of the policy and community recommendations HDI is making to address disparities. That's today.uconn.edu. Yeah. I usually do institutional news, and this is going to come as a shock to most people, but over the winter break, there's not a lot of institutional news. <laughs> uh, I will say that we uh, moved up our move-in this weekend because of a winter storm. As we record this, the winter storm has not yet arrived, but as, as you're listening to it, it's over. Have they named it yet? Uh, I know that you're not supposed to. Probably. But. So anyway, that's my news, the move-in. So it's really relevant since um, you know, this, that'll already have happened. And 
Okay, well, the reason I chose that as my news is because uh, Tom's History Corner, which we have not talked about, is uh, is going to be devoted to a previous weather issue on campus. Is it the blizzard of 78? It is. That's a very good oh. guess. But before we get to Tom's History Corner, <laughs> as we do every week. <laughs> well, every other week. Every other week. Thank you. Every fortnight. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Ken and Julie, uh, who have prepared us uh, some stories, some looks behind the curtain at UConn. Behind the curtain. What's happening behind the curtain, Julie? I'm going to take you behind the curtain at the Jorgensen Outreach for Youth, also known as JOY program, which aims to expose area children, especially those from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, to the arts and develop future audiences for cultural events, especially here at Jorgensen. It does this in a few ways, including providing free tickets to children and young families to cultural programs here, public school programs where bus transportation is provided for them to get to Jorgensen, outreach where artists go to public schools for a master class or presentation, and one other really exciting program that you're going to hear about right now. The first voice you'll hear is Rod Rock, director of the Jorgensen Center for Performing Arts. Essentially, it's an educational outreach program, uh, an award-winning educational outreach program, I might add, that Jorgensen has been working on for about 20 years. The biggest and most expensive part of the Jorgensen Outreach for Youth would be the Joy Conservatory program. And that portion of the program is funded through private contributions and corporate sponsorship. We audition probably between 65 to maybe 80, 85 students in the summer, primarily high school students, but a few of them are middle school kids. And if you're accepted into the conservatory program, you are awarded a scholarship. This year we gave away 43 $1,200 scholarships that cover the cost, or actually they help cover the cost of study for, for their private lessons. Joy Conservatory students receive free tickets to a variety of Jorgensen cultural events and perform in one of three recitals held at Jorgensen throughout the year. And it's really a great opportunity for them to do that because we school them and we give them master classes where they learn about stage etiquette and how to be a professional performer when mm -hmm. you walk out on stage. And it gives them an opportunity to work with other students their age on a common interest. So there's a, there's a, a good amount of personal growth and that, that takes place with these kids. And then there's also masterclass opportunities for those students in the conservatory program to study with some of the visiting artists that perform at Jorgensen. We also take some of the high-level faculty members from the Department of Music, um, and those folks also give master classes to these Joy Conservatory kids throughout the year. Students have learned from such acclaimed artists as violinist Gil Shaham, the Emerson String Quartet, and opera singer Deborah Voigt. Conservatory students play a variety of instruments, strings, piano, brass, percussion, voice, and represent a range of talent levels. Getting to play on the Jorgensen stage, some on a Steinway piano, brings something else to their performance too, Rock says. The other thing that's really great about it and really, really important is it's one thing for a kid to um, perform at their home or at a studio, but you put it into a big space like a, a concert hall and um, it's a whole different kind of experience for them. And oftentimes, there's just something about the voluminous space that they're performing in that really, they, they do something. Something happens internally or mentally or emotionally. And um, oftentimes, the kids will play with more confidence and a bigger sound. And it's just really, really cool to see that happen.
In November, two Joy Conservatory students got to experience that on an even higher level. 14-year-old Amy Godo from Kingston, Rhode Island, and 16-year-old Sophia Gilchenok from Columbia, Connecticut, were among 10 students featured on NPR's From the Top, which showcases talented young classical musicians and taped two shows at Jorgensen in one night. Yeah, it was a really great experience. Uh, it was their first ever double show. So instead of just five kids, um, there were 10 of us, and it was really fun. That was Sophia, who plays viola and travels to New York City every weekend to study with the Juilliard Pre-College Program. She uses her Joy Scholarship to continue taking lessons with an instructor who left the Juilliard Program. Rock says dwindling arts funding in schools makes programs like Joy indispensable. Because, you know, in this day and age with all of the economic uncertainty that public school programs are facing, a lot of times the arts programs, the music programs in those public schools are cut and those kids don't have any opportunity to experience or explore their interests in music or art or something like that. And then just in general, our whole culture these days, for generations now, there are lots and lots of peoples and families who have had little or no exposure to the cultural arts. And so this is our opportunity to sort of open the doors to these young people and give them the chance to really experience what the arts do best, which, you know, it inspires their imagination and opens doors for other possibilities in their lives. Ryan Burns, the Joy Program coordinator who earned his master's and doctorate in music at UConn, agrees. I think now more than ever, arts initiatives, arts education is no more important than it is now. The ability for young people to think creatively, to express their emotions, it's you know really important for them in their own development and education and growth but they need resources to do these things because most things in life aren't free. And so having the opportunities through a program such as the JOY program, through the generosity of others, is such a benefit for them. And just being able to see their growth, especially some of the students who have been a part of the program for a number of years, you get to see in a real tangible way their growth over a few years, and it's really impressive. And just what they're able to do at their young age, you know, I like to refer to them as young artists, and they, they do some really incredible work. Well, I thought the young talent on the Jorgensen stage that November night was pretty mind-blowing. You keep track of their names because you know they're going to be doing some really great things. Burns stresses that it's not about grooming the next Mozart, but about nurturing arts appreciation. But the beauty, I think, of the program is that it supports those that may not go into music in college or at the university level. I think in the arts, in the world of music, we need performers, we need educators, we need patrons, you know, and so that's the beauty of music and the arts that you can enjoy it on a lot of different levels and it's it's all needed. The music I hope you've enjoyed throughout this piece was performed at the Joy Conservatory recital held in November. First you heard 16-year-old Joseph Pearson playing Prokofiev's Prelude Opus 12 number 7 and in the middle was Rudrock Nathan and Ellington High Jr. playing Mozart's Sonata in G Major number 283 movement 1. Here's Sophia Gelchenok playing Solo Viola Sonata Opus 25 number 1 movement 4 by Paul Hindemith.
What beautiful music that was. And uh, I also want to say that um, I work with uh, Rod Rock on sometimes big events at Jorgensen, and he's Stop a great guy. bragging. He is a great guy. Yeah. We're lucky to work it with him. We have a very good performing arts center here with very good performing arts mm-hmm. all the time. It's all true. the time. It's, all the it's time. varied. I mean, you it's get underappreciated. Everything. And we will hear from someone who's coming sometime in the future. Oh, <laughs> so vague. Stay tuned. But before we hear that, Ken, what are we going to hear from you this week? We're going to hear about uh, Professor Thomas Lawrence Long, who holds a very unique position uh, here on campus. He's an associate professor in, the re- in residence in the School of Nursing, but he's not a nurse. He is a professor of English and a member of the core faculty in the Department of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. He's also someone with extensive experience in technical writing, and he conducts research focused on medical humanities and health studies. Uh, in 2007, when the School of Nursing uh, was expanding its research activities, uh, Professor Long was asked to develop a writing support program for nursing students and faculty. He also created the nursingwriting.com website, which is a forum for news, information, and advice about writing. He's the co-author of the book Writing and Nursing, A Brief Guide, uh, with his colleague, who is Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Nursing, Cheryl Beck, who's one of the nation's leading researchers on postpartum depression. Uh, I sat down with uh, Professor Long. We talked about the wide range of writing about nursing practice and his work in the Center for Nursing Scholarship and Innovation. If you think about what the scope of nursing research is, and if you think about what the scope of nursing writing is, it's extraordinarily broad. So in addition to the traditional quantitative research studies, including clinical studies and qualitative studies of vulnerable populations. There are also case studies that nurse clinicians and nurse scholars write, as well as publications that are aimed at general professional audiences and publications that are uh, aimed at patient audiences. And so all of those things can be considered technical writing or technical communication. One of the things you talk about in in the book that you uh, co-authored with Cheryl Beck is writing to and learning to write. Right. Writing to learn and learning to To write. write. And so in an academic setting, there are basically two purposes involved in writing. You might use writing in a course as a way of stimulating learning. And so there are a variety of both low-stakes writing assignments, for example, just some five- or ten-minute in-class writing, as well as high-stakes writing, the writing and grading of a term paper, for instance. And, And those are often designed in order to stimulate learning. The mirror side of that is learning to write, and particularly in the disciplines, writing in the disciplines, learning how to write like a nurse scientist. And so our book, Writing and Nursing, A Brief Guide, is designed to foster and promote in nursing students, both undergraduates and graduates, this sense of themselves as nurse writers and as nurse scientists in training. I think people would be surprised to know there's more than 70 different nursing journals most often by clinical definition, uh, by specialty, pediatrics, oncology, emergency medicine, even nursing management. 
and uh, nursing home care. While the first uh, serious uh, nursing journal began to publish in the early 20th century, the American Journal of Nursing, the first research journal, uh, which is called Nursing Research, uh, was first published in 1952. Since then, there have been a proliferation of journals related to nursing research and nursing practice. And the thing that I think it's important for your listeners to understand is that nursing practice and nursing research runs the entire human lifespan from prenatal to postmortem. Nurses study and work with pregnant mothers and work with them in a way that promotes uh, their health and the infant's health. They work with infant populations, pediatric, adolescent, young adult, geriatric, death and dying, and after death, the uh, loss, uh, grief, and mourning of family and friends. Nurses are involved in the care and the study of the care across the human lifespan. You are unique on this campus as far as we have been able to mm -hmm. determine mm -hmm. in being in residence mm -hmm. uh, with a specific discipline. Should there be more faculty such as yourself uh, working in different areas or specific technical areas such as engineering and other disciplines that require the same type of technical thinking and scientific thinking to get uh, faculty and students more on, on, on track for this? I think so, Ken. And when I interviewed with the faculty, I made it clear to them that I wasn't just going to be providing a kind of technical service. I was going to be working with them. I was going to be learning their discourses. I was going to be learning their culture. And I also promised them that I wasn't just going to talk the talk about academic writing and faculty productivity. I was also going to be walking the walk. I was going to be pursuing my own research, conference presentations, and publications. Uh, and so I think both of those things are necessary. Any school could hire freelance technical editors. But I think the value added I bring is that I'm embedded in the school that I'm enculturated in the values and the practices and the rhythms of the school so that I really do know the curriculum. I know nurses and I know nursing. I know the values of nursing. I know the way that nurses think. And so I bring that as the value added to my work in the Center for Nursing Scholarship and Innovation. I know from uh, having talked to you over, over the years that we've known each other and writing about some of the activities that you've done. You are researching. You're producing uh, mm -hmm. exhibitions, in fact, uh, the mm -hmm. History of Nursing exhibits that mm -hmm. uh, exist over in the, uh, the building across from where we are sitting right now and uh, the work that you did with others on the AIDS anniversary, all science, all the research and history that goes into mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. It seems as, as if we're looking at the confluence of the humanities and science coming together in writing as it often does. Right, exactly, exactly. And in fact, uh, uh, I, I also serve on the core faculty of women's gender and sexuality studies here at UConn and teach the gender and science course. And so one of the things I do in that course is to introduce my students to what used to be called natural philosophy. Uh, that is that there is a, a roughly 2,000-year tradition 
uh, in the Western world of what used to be called natural philosophy, going back to Aristotle at least. And natural philosophy is what we eventually came to call science. These worlds, I think, can very productively intermingle with each other and engage in conversation with each other. Right now, I'm a co-investigator on two grant-funded projects within the School of Nursing, supporting nurse researchers, quantitative nurse researchers, who are doing work on lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender populations, vulnerable populations, one related to diabetes, the other related to HPV vaccine. And so I bring that area of expertise in gender and sexuality studies to nurse scientists pursuing better outcomes for vulnerable populations. Uh, one of uh, Professor Long's recent projects was speaking at the TEDx UConn event, which is organized by students on campuses around the country. Uh, we have one here, of course. He discussed his research on the topic of how Civil War nurses brought change to health and women. And he focused on three nurses who people may have heard of, uh, Sarah Emma Edmonds, who disguised herself as a man and served in the Union Army and wrote the book Nurse and Spy. Mm-hmm. Mary Ellen Bickerdyke, a hospital administrator for Union Soldiers, and Mary Livermore, who was a journalist and women's rights advocate who organized auxiliary societies in the Civil War era. Cool. And Very Tom nice. Long was in our mentioned in our last episode in the Aaron Young interview. Yes, he was. Yeah. Telling her to act more like a mediocre man. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, I first met Tom uh, when we both served on a uh, curriculum committee that he chaired on the writing uh, requirement on campus for the W courses. Uh, he's a great leader of committees. He got the, <laughs> we got the work done. We, that was a committee that's for a, two that's years. That's a tough thing to do, be yeah. a great leader of a committee. It's an important skill in university, though. Definitely. Which, and it was an interdisciplinary. We had people from music, from engineering, from the English departments, and from the uh, other parts of the university. I was the administrator on the, on the, on the committee. Very and it was, it was very It was a very good committee to be on. So as I alluded to in my news piece that Julie cruelly mocked <laughs> on, on this day of all days, Stop my, it. my birthday. It's um, not your birthday. Yeah, it is. Your birthday is the day after my birthday? Yeah, it is. This is kind of like a birthday week special hold on, here. In hold on, hold on. You bought me a card for my birthday, which was yeah. so sweet, and I didn't even know today was your birthday. That's okay. That's really right. awful. It's a, it's, right. a, it's a guy thing. It's a guy thing. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm 25 years old. I yeah, can finally, you are. yeah, 25 yeah. and some other years. I, I mentioned the uh, the bad weather. Since the bad weather is coming on a Sunday, we're not going to cancel classes because we don't have classes on the Sunday before the semester starts. But we do cancel classes pretty frequently in the winter now. We do, um, and that's Thanks. a change. That is a change. That was not the case many years ago. And so, for UConn Magazine, I was researching the blizzard of '78. I got interested in the history of weather cancellations because that's the kind of <laughs> we thing have I, talked about this. How there were like years where we had no weather cancellations yes. on campus. So. For this uh, trip to Tom's History Corner, it's a very snowy corner indeed. We're going to go back to February 7th, 1978. I like picturing it as a snowy corner. A snowy corner. <laughs> very yeah, good. Like sound effects. Perfect. Wow, you guys hear work. that? Hear the wind coming? So this was a, a nor'easter that started, uh, and um, weather detection radar and things weren't as sophisticated as they are today, so it kind of caught people in the region off guard. This was a storm. Normally, nor'easters last about 6 to 12 hours. This lasted 33 hours of heavy wow. snow. So there was record snowfall around the region. About 100 people were killed, actually, and uh, close to $2 billion in today's money. And damage was done. It was during a new moon, so the tides were very high, and so there was a lot of damage along the coast in New Mm. England. 
what was not happening during all this was the cancellation of classes at UConn. <laughs> uh, actually, the commuter, the, the regional campuses, which at the time were all commuter, we now have housing in Stanford, but at the time that was not the case, they were all canceled. Mm-hmm. And commuters were told to stay home. But uh, the res- it's a largely residential campus then as now. And Kenneth G. Wilson, who was the vice president for academic affairs, which I think is probably like the provost, he said uh, in the Daily Campus, they're paraphrasing what he said, um, quote, he suggested students should use their own judgment to attend classes just to see if their professors do show since, quote, some of them can be funny. I'm so baffled by this quote. So, some of them can be funny. Sometimes professors are funny. So risk your life yeah. in this blizzard uh, and try I, to I, I just would see. point out that faculty and staff are also commuters. Yeah, much, for the yeah. Most part. See if they show up because they're funny. Is it? Does he mean funny like haha, or does no, he like mean like strange? So they're strange. They're oddballs. They're going to show up anyway. They're going to show up. So you anyway. might as well go and see if your professor's there. And they didn't have emails. They couldn't nope. be like, "Hey guys, we're not coming." Wow. That was the days That's of the funny. telephone tree. It's very interesting. By the afternoon, uh, Governor Elagrasso had declared a state of emergency and had shut down all roads so, in the state. So we did not. So classes were canceled starting in the late afternoon, well, early evening. Good for them. Jeez. And then they were canceled the following day, Wednesday. Well, they waited until 6 a.m. on Wednesday to cancel classes. Jeez. And the stories, I will say the Daily Campus story was actually really good-natured about it. On the day of the blizzard, um, the front-page headline was, um, uh, uh, classes are being held if you can tunnel there. I love it. In the following day's story, Kenneth G. Wilson said this was the first time in his 27 years at UConn that he could remember canceling classes because of weather. So I got really interested to find out, when did they cancel classes for weather? So I think... um, you have to go all the way back to 1938 for the, the Great New England Hurricane of 1938, which was the w- largest and worst hurricane to hit the region in history. They really didn't cancel classes for 27 years. No, I Plus, mean, for 40 years. 40 years, years. yeah. Um, I was thinking about his. Uh, so, I mean, like, the whole, I mean, 700 people died. Like, this was a terrible hurricane. So they didn't have classes, uh, obviously. Well, but good. they did put out an issue of the Connecticut Campus newspaper. Oh, okay. So the, the students... Uh, they, I mean, they couldn't print it. Uh, so what they did is they had a mimeograph machine. Wow. And they mimeographed two pages, and they were sitting up next to a battery-powered shortwave radio because they got world news Wow! in their storm edition from the, the Munich conference when uh, uh, Britain and France forced Czechoslovakia to seize Sudetenland to Nazi Germany. That's, huh. like, in the issue. <laughs> so, but most Good of it— for them. They would not do that now. Most of it, as you can imagine, is storm-related news. One of the things that I thought was pretty interesting is they— also, we're interested in trying to figure out when was the last time class had been canceled for weather. So they talked to Sherman P. Hollister, superintendent of grounds, who apparently had been there for quite Just a long time. I want to add that to the list of great names. Of great names, Sherman P. Hollister. And he talked about how, I mean, I guess there were a lot more trees. And that's actually when you see old pictures from before 1938 on campus, there are a lot more trees. There was something called Valentine Grove, which had oak mm-hmm. trees that were hundreds of years old, and they all came down. Oh. And uh, a devastated Sherman P. Hollister said that, it would take at least a hundred years for the campus to regain its former beauty. I don't think. I don't I'm not think sure that's if that's true. true, but it's very beautiful now, and it is not. What he told them was he thought that this was the first time that normal uh, operations had been disrupted since an ice storm in 1909. Wow. So, I just want to note that last year on my birthday, yeah. it snowed about five flakes, and we <laughs> had a snow day. Yeah, we did. That is, the winter of 1978 was when okay. I moved to Virginia. Yeah. From uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. of all places. And that the whole East Coast was just blanketed. And down in Northern Virginia then, I think it's still kind of the same, uh, they don't do very well with weather. No. And it was George Washington's birthday weekend. 
It was in early February. Of course, they don't celebrate Lincoln's birthday down there below the Mason-Dixon <laughs> line, of course. Um, and everything shut The government shut down, much like it is right now, uh, except for the weather. And it was everything was closed for three days the entire weekend. Yeah, People abandoned their cars in the huh. middle of the Shirley Highway, which is Route 395 down there. And it was nothing mm-hmm. moving. People, <laughs> I remember, in the parking lot where I was living, the, the apartment complex, people were using spoons to try and get... <laughs> Snow away from their car. Oh, yeah. they, they, they don't have shovels. They don't they don't have shovels. Have, yeah. Oh my gosh! Big, yeah. you know, serving spoons, for, right? Yeah. For, gravy and mashed potatoes. Yeah. When I when I lived in North Carolina, I was king of my apartment complex because I was the only person who owned a shovel. Wow. So when it snowed, like the so you had to shovel everyone. I had to shovel out, everyone out. Poor guy. But yeah, so I can't say this definitively with a hundred percent confidence, but I think I think it's extremely possible that in the first seventy-eight years of the twentieth century. Classes were canceled because of weather at UConn three times. That is insane. Uh, there was a there was a blizzard in 1958 with 17 inches of snow, and they had class, and commuters had to come, and the parking lots weren't cleared, so they just parked in the streets. Did did people really come? They did. There's pictures wow. in the Daily Campus of like students trudging through They're these narrow pathways. Dedicated students. The only other time I could see class I could find for classes being canceled was the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated, which obviously was not weather related. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So. Times have a change. Times have changed. Times have changed. But what hasn't changed is the quality that comes to you every other week from UConn 360 and the ways in which you can get in touch with us. Uh, you can get us on Twitter, at UConn Podcast. You can also check out at Maine underscore old. I posted some pictures from the storm of 1958, including a newspaper clipping um, about the commuters parking on the street and how mm-hmm. that cool. incidentally made plowing very difficult because the plows yes. couldn't get past the cars. Yes. Uh, and you can also find me at TJ Brain Julie. I'm at Julie Bartuka. I'm very upset. What a bad friend I am for forgetting <laughs> Tom's birthday. And it's fine. It's fine. I don't care. It's gonna take me a while to get over that. Twenty five is not really a milestone. Birthday. Yeah, no, it's not. You're right. Ken, where can people find you? Not on Twitter. I know. <laughs> not on Twitter. Not on Facebook. Today.uconn.edu. Yep. And on Fridays at 11 a.m. on WHUS. Yes. You can sound alternative 91.7, and you can uh, hear a, to us again. A, a, a previous episode of <laughs> the Yukon 360 podcast, minus the news. All right. Thanks, everyone, and welcome back to campus to all our students and faculty members and to Sherman P. Hollister, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs>